Welcome to Transatlantic Takeaway by the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Common Ground, in which we explore the impact of key international developments on the European Union and the United States. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Is Europe on the brink of war? That's what many fear, given the Kremlin's recent deployment of nearly 100,000 Russian troops along the border with Ukraine. Recent meetings between Moscow, Washington, NATO, and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe failed to end the crisis. But will Russia follow through on its threat? And what is the West prepared to do about it if it does? With me in Berlin to discuss the volatile situation are GMF editorial director Rachel Tausenfreund, who hosts and produces the Out of Order podcast. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, Sarai. Happy to be here. From Washington, D.C., we are joined by GMF resident fellow Liana Fix, a historian and political scientist who is on sabbatical from the Kerba Foundation in Berlin, as well as GMF fellow Michael Kimmage. He's a Catholic University history professor who, between 2014 and 2016, was part of the U.S. Secretary of State's planning staff advising on Russia and Ukraine. Welcome to you both. Hello. Thanks. It's good to be here. Thanks for having us. Let me start with you, Rachel. How did we get to this point? I mean, the Russian threat to Ukraine is hardly new. I mean, back in 2014, I was an NPR correspondent in the eastern Donbass region covering the Russian incursion. So what's different this time? So what's different is Russia has now amassed a large number of troops along the Ukrainian border, over 100,000. That's that's a different scale of threatened invasion than what we saw in 2014. So that's what's new. Why Putin is has new motivation, is trying another game than 2014, I don't think we know exactly. That is really one of the big questions. Liana, what do the Russians want? I mean, why move the troops into these positions now? And as Rachel notes, there are a lot more of them now than there were in 2014. Is there a moment of weakness that Vladimir Putin is sensing? Or is there a greater threat to Russia? I think there are a couple of factors that contribute to the perception that this is a window of opportunity from the Russian perspective. So domestically, the Russian president can run for re-election in 2024. So certainly it will be an opportunity for him to establish his personal legacy. Internationally, he sees that there is a vacuum of leadership in uh, Europe with elections in Germany, elections in France just having taken place. And also the new bilateral channel with the United States, the strategic stability dialogue, seems from a Moscow perspective to provide an opportunity to discuss European security and to create a crisis to increase Moscow's leverage towards the United States and NATO. Now, I understand that you were born in Kazakhstan, and I'm wondering, do you see the Russian actions in Kazakhstan as affecting what's happening with this standoff on Ukraine at the moment? If so, how? Well, certainly the crisis in Kazakhstan also came um, as a surprise to Moscow, but I think there are two sides to it. On the one hand, it was a distraction from what was going on in Ukraine. On the other hand, it was Russia's aim for a long time to exert more influence on Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan has been very prominent in defending its independence um, since the end of the Soviet Union, and it has done so quite obviously towards uh, Russia. Kazakhstan never wanted to be an uh, ally or dependent on Russia. Now, with Russian troops in Kazakhstan, Moscow can exert much more influence on Kazakhstan than it was able in the past. So on the one hand, it was a distraction from Ukraine. On the other hand, it was an opportunity for Russia to extend its sphere of influence in the neighborhood. 
Michael, were any of the meetings in Geneva, Brussels, or Vienna effective in diffusing tensions between Moscow and the West? I don't think we have the full evidence. I think the best one can say is that they were civil. Uh, There were some polite words exchanged after all of the meetings. They didn't break down. Nobody walked out. On the other hand, that's a pretty low bar. What you see from the statements from Deputy Foreign Minister Ryabkov this morning is that there's no need for further consultation with NATO. Uh, And if you accept that statement as sort of definitive, which seems possible, that means that the negotiations are quite possibly a failure in achieving anything. So was there one meeting that was perhaps more effective than the other, although it sounds like uh, nothing really worked out very well? I'm just wondering if, for example, the discussion with the U.S. one-on-one or even the discussion with the OSCE, which, of course, is much more inclusive in terms of the number of countries involved, you know, whether either of those might have been more effective than the NATO one. Well, uh, looking at things from a Russian vantage point, also the meeting with NATO, so in a sense, all three meetings Uh, are pretty good optics for Russia because, you know, here you have European security. For the most part, Ukraine is not at the table. European Union is not at the table. But Russia is there sort of negotiating with the United States and talking to NATO uh, as if it's a major actor and player in European security, which may or may not be the case. But uh, the optics of that are very, you know, effective. Also in terms of what Liana said a moment ago about domestic Russian politics and sort of Putin's legacy uh, and such. So, That may be, from the Russian perspective, the true significance of these meetings. So let me ask you just one follow-up question, uh, because during the Obama administration, you were involved on the diplomatic front with Russia and Ukraine. Do you see any missteps or actions that are missing in the Biden administration's approach to the situation now? No. uh, I think in some ways the Biden approach is better than the Obama approach in one particular area. One of the conclusions that the Obama administration drew from the crisis in Ukraine was that it was necessary to isolate Russia. So there was really very little diplomacy, uh, very little back and forth. I think that didn't pan out very well. So I think the Biden administration is following the right recipe. They're building up their own leverage to the transatlantic relationship with the threat of sanctions through displays of NATO unity, which are important, of course, on the Western side. But they're also showing a great receptivity to listen to Russia, which is totally reasonable, and to speak if terms can be discovered on which progress uh, can be made. So I think that that's entirely the right recipe and a bit more effective than the one the Obama administration came up with. Rachel, there's a major player in all of this who appears to have been sidelined, and that, of course, would be the EU. Why are they left out of this? I mean, I'm as big a fan as the EU uh, of the EU as there is, but the EU is just not the big security player in Europe We could wish that to be otherwise, but it isn't the case yet. So first of all, Russia doesn't want EU at the table. But second of all, EU hasn't yet earned itself, let's say, a place at the table. So European states are essential in this question. They're also in all the formats. They're in the Normandy format. They're in the NATO format. They're in the OSCE format. And as much as High Representative Burrell maybe complains about the EU not being involved, the EU is just not a security actor yet. And so um, it's going to be on the sidelines of these talks until that changes. Well, Leanna, you're an EU citizen here. I'm wondering if you agree with Rachel's assessment. I mean, the fact that the Normandy format, the EU, the Germans are missing from this conversation, what does that say to you? Well, as a good German, it's of course difficult to criticize the European Union. But let me also mention that the United States has been quite active in including European leaders. So there was a lot of cooperation, a lot of consultation with European actors. And also why Olaf Scholz, the new chancellor in Germany, certainly needs some time to gain the same kind of reputation that 
Angela Merkel had with Moscow, he does try. So there are attempts to revive the Normandy former German diplomats have been to Moscow to discuss um, the crisis. So there is some activism from European Union member states. And of course, also France is um, taking on the council presidency of the European Union and had in the past its own security dialogue with Russia. So it also tries to chime in there. And then also when it comes to deterring Russia, but also in case an intervention takes place, to move on to action against Russia, the European Union, of course, plays almost the biggest role in sanctions policy. That is something where the European Union has been incredibly successful in 2014, putting together with the United States a sanctions package. And that is a responsibility which will be very much on the European Union to put together a sanctions package which really hurts um, the Russian leadership and really hurts Russia. So one of Russia's demands is to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO. But do any of the three of you see a scenario in which Ukraine would actually be allowed to join NATO? I mean, not in the next uh, years. But it's a really important difference to say you're welcome to join now and you're never welcome to join. And that's the interesting gray area that the Biden administration is working on right now. And at the same time that NATO, of course, is first and foremost in Russian rhetoric and is a part of this story, it's also a bit of a distraction from the story. What really matters to Russia, in addition to the possibility of NATO membership for Ukraine, is the tightening military relationship between Ukraine and the West. So that has to be factored in as well. But just on the NATO front, you have uh, membership for uh, Ukraine and NATO in the Ukrainian constitution, and you actually have a fair amount of NATO activity in Ukraine. So exercises, training, uh, sort of interoperability uh, and such. So membership is sort of the issue. And at the same time, it's not the full issue. Well, Liana, how does how did Europeans, I should say, feel about the fact that Ukraine isn't becoming part of NATO because there's been more discussion against it or the problems that exist in pulling Ukraine in than for it, even from the Western side? The European Union and NATO, I think, both have put themselves to some extent into a difficult position. I mean, NATO has included in its Bucharest um, summit declaration in 2008 that at some point Ukraine and Georgia can become a member in the future, although this is obviously, as Michael said, not on the table right now. And at the same time, we also have the Eastern Partnership of the European Union, a program that was launched to bring the neighbors closer to the European Union, including Ukraine, including Georgia, which really raised hopes in these countries that they can become members of the European Union at some point. So nowadays, if you go to Georgia, you have the impression that the most pro-European people actually live outside the European Union in Georgia and in Ukraine to some extent. But that is obviously not an option which is on the table from the perspective of the European Union because they're busy enough with dealing with the Western Balkans and the complicated situation there. So there is no official membership perspective. So in the long term, the question really is how the European Union, but both NATO, can prevent a disappointment in Ukraine and Georgia after so many hopes have been raised for many years. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about what will happen if the Russians actually invade Ukraine. Stay tuned. Democracy. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, one of the hosts of the German Marshall Fund's podcast, Out of Order. 
Join our conversations with leaders and experts on what the dark side of tech does to democracy, how the pandemic shapes geopolitics, and other topics of global order and disorder. You can find our episodes and miniseries at gmfus.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We are the German Marshall Fund of the United States, strengthening transatlantic cooperation since 1972. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, the host of Common Ground. And I'm Dina El Sayed, the senior producer. Each week, we bring you a new lively discussion on a hard-hitting topic. If you want to learn more about our podcast, check out our website at commongroundberlin.com. The episodes are free to download, but they aren't free to create. Common Ground depends on grants as well as donations from listeners like you. So if you want to help us out, please click on the donate button at commongroundberlin.com. And thanks for listening. I'm Verena Hütter, host of The Big Ponder, the Goethe Institute's transatlantic podcast, bringing abstract concepts to life through personal radio essays. Every other week, our producers turn broad topics into captivating stories told from a U.S. and German perspective. You can find all episodes of The Big Ponder on our website, goethe.de, as well as on your favorite podcast apps. And discover the stories behind The Big Ponder on our radio show, Sounding the Big Pond. It is broadcast each Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C. We do look forward to connecting with you. Welcome back to Transatlantic Takeaway by the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Common Ground. We are talking about the ramped up Russian threat to Ukraine and what it means for Germany, Europe and the United States. My guests are GMF's Rachel Tausenfreund in our Berlin studio and in Washington, D.C., GMF fellows Liana Fix and Michael Kimmich. Before the break, we did a little tea leaf reading into the posturing and rhetoric on both sides. But Michael, what will the United States do if Russia invades Ukraine or on a lesser scale takes more territory in Donbass? Will the response be more saber rattling or will it be more economic, for example, sanctions? Or can we actually expect to see a ramping up of military aid or even actual NATO troop involvement? I think NATO troop involvement is very unlikely, and, and President Biden has been quite clear that there's not a formal military role for the United States in the event of a wider war between uh, Ukraine and Russia. On the other hand, as we've already discussed, there would be, in the words of the administration, a massive uh, sanctions package that uh, Europe and the United States would put together in tandem. And then, likewise, the Biden administration has discussed uh, fueling an insurgency in Ukraine, and I think you could imagine intelligence sharing and perhaps covert action on the part of the U.S. Uh, in Ukraine on behalf of the Ukrainians. So the U.S. would be in the conflict. I think it sort of signaled that, but it would try to limit it in some ways to a sort of non-formal commitment to the defense of Ukraine. Rachel, what about Germany? I mean, you're in Berlin, and there's a lot riding here on Nord Stream 2. Do you envision that being scuttled or majorly delayed? And what are the repercussions for the German government, if that's the case? Yeah, Nord Stream 2 uh, remains a really interesting question. It has been for a while. So we still have statements from um, the Social Democrats that are resisting pulling Nord Stream 2 into this debate. We had Kevin Kunat, who is a young Social Democrat, sort of a major figure of the left wing of the SPD. He, again, recently resisted Nord Stream 2 being 
discussed as part of a powerful sanctions uh, response if Russia escalates. It's hard for me, I mean, Diana maybe will disagree with me, but it's hard for me to imagine that in the end, if Russia really obviously escalates and uh, the West has to come up with a new level of sanctions, I think Nord Stream 2 is going to have to be part of that. Um, it'll be difficult within the government, perhaps if there's any nuance there. The Greens have long been against Nord Stream 2. The SPD is uh, in favor. So it's going to be a a tough discussion. But I can't see them uh, keeping that out of sanctions. Um, I think in the end, there's going to be too much pressure for Germany to take a strong leading role in Europe to make a European response robust enough. And Nord Stream 2 has to be part of that. Liana, to answer Rachel's question, I mean, what do you think? Do you agree with her assessment? I think Rachel is absolutely right. Um, the And here we have to dig a little bit deeper into the inter-coalition situation in Germany, which is really not um, quite easy. We have for the first time a three-party coalition, and especially the topic of Nord Stream 2 is disputed between the Greens and the Social Democrats. So far, there seemed to have been a position um, which by the Chancellor and also by the Green Foreign Minister, Annalena Baerbock, which suggested that while there was not a very clear statement, Nord Stream 2 would definitely be part of the package. But the statements by um, prominent SPD politicians that Rachel just mentioned show to what extent there's also an inner party fighting going on within the Social Democrats, within different factions of the Social Democrats, but also to what extent there are also differences within the coalition on Russia policy. So I agree if there will be a full-blown-out um, invasion of Ukraine, Nord Stream 2 will have to be part of the package and probably will. The only question really is, what if it is a smaller, unclearer scenario? Will Berlin then try to water down its commitment towards the United States, for instance, if the um, so-called People's Republic in the east of Ukraine declare themselves independent, what will then be Germany's reaction? Uh, If I could jump in here, I would just say, uh, to reverse the question, I feel like the bigger political problem in Berlin will be if many people think Nord Stream 2 should be included on sanctions and there's pressure to do that um, and Nord Stream 2 isn't included. That's going to be a big political struggle within the coalition, more so than if Nord Stream 2 is. Michael, what about the U.S. stance? I mean, if, let's say, Germany or well, it would be Germany in this case, were to stand against Nord Stream 2 being stopped or being held up as a sanction, uh, how would the U.S. react? I mean, that doesn't seem like something that President Biden would be in favor of. Yes. I mean, already you have a very serious move on Capitol Hill at the moment prior to any uh, Russian, you know, sort of uh, uh, action this winter to sanction Germany for Nord Stream 2. So Biden sort of faces that from the Republican Party at the moment. And of course, if there were a wider war, the U.S. would be putting a great deal of pressure on Germany to make Nord Stream 2 a part of the uh, of the sanctions package. I think that you could turn your attention at the moment for this question, you could turn your attention back to, uh, to Moscow. This is sort of what Moscow is hoping for, that by exerting this kind of pressure, there will be cracks in the edifice of the transatlantic relationship. And Moscow may not be entirely wrong about that. To compare to 2014, to be a little bit uh, hard-edged about it, In 2014, the West was willing to support Ukraine and has been ever since, but was not willing to sacrifice for Ukraine. So it did economic sanctions that didn't really damage Western economies. Now, if we're threatening major sanctions, we have to be willing to put up with the blowback from that. And that could well be difficult. On the other hand, you know, I think that the optics of a wider invasion when they come and they hit Western publics would 
make it much more possible to justify a very strong sanctions regime, including pulling Nord Stream 2 in Germany. Well, we've talked a lot about what Western entities and leaders think about uh, the situation or how it should be handled. But let me turn this around, Michael, and ask you about the Ukrainians themselves. Now, when I was in Donbass, most of the people that I talked to there actually stood with Russia and they didn't trust Kiev or the EU and NATO. And on top of that, a lot of Ukrainian troops in Donbass come from the western part of the country, which fostered even more distrust. So my question is this, does or should Ukrainian self-determination factor into this whole question about what should be done if Russia decides to act? Well, 100 percent. I mean, this is, uh, you know, speaking for American foreign policy, the, the key to the whole story that Ukrainian sovereignty is uh, the sort of pillar or a pillar of European security. Uh, and the degree to which Ukrainian sovereignty is damaged is really uh, the degree to which European security as a whole uh, is threatened. So this is not an academic example. It's integral to future ideas of the security of Europe. The problem politically, in a sense, is that Zelensky has almost no room uh, to maneuver. He came in, in quotation marks, as a peace candidate, as somebody who is going to work with Russia uh, and try to resolve the question of the Donbass. I think he was sincere about that, but he found that that's not really a very popular move in Ukraine. Uh, and if Zelensky were, for example, to think about changing Ukraine's position about NATO or its orientation toward the EU as a way of appeasing Russia or getting Russia to calm down, uh, I think his government would uh, would fall. So Ukraine kind of is where it is with its politics. Uh, Russia, of course, finds that provocative uh, and very problematic. But no doubt, from a Western perspective, Ukraine's territorial integrity, even though it's already been compromised, is by definition a very important European question and a very important European problem. And just perhaps to add to that, we um, also, although Russia accuses the West now of having broken promises in the past, um, it was very much Russia that um, violated the Budapest Agreement, which sort of secured um, Ukraine's um, sovereignty and independence in exchange for um, nuclear weapons on its territory. And then also, on the other hand, the eastern part of Ukraine before 2014 was not a part of Europe or the post-Soviet space where we already had a conflict going back decades, as in some other parts. This was an area which really has seen conflict only beginning in 2014, when Russia started instigating conflict there. Um, so it's very much an area where Russia has pushed the region to political destabilization. So would you say today, though, Liana, that uh, the Ukrainians and Eastern Ukraine and Donbass, that they support the president, the uh, Ukrainian president, and that they've sort of shifted from their pro-Russian stance of some years ago? I think it's very difficult to make um, definite conclusions about um, the people living in eastern Ukraine. The only conclusion which I think one can make is that they are in a very desperate position at the moment and that also the perspective of living there, um, of uh, making your life in this region um, has become very difficult. So there are people who are emigrating to Russia. Um, there's also an effort of passportization, as we call it by the Russian side, so handing out passports to people in uh, eastern Ukraine. And I think this is probably the biggest problem, the socioeconomic situation there and the instability, which does not allow for the people there to make a living. Let me ask a quick follow-up question to you and Michael. Do you see it as a problem for Vladimir Putin that he doesn't have the, quote, ideological glue to hold together his sphere of influence? I mean, it seems like this push toward violence is something that he's been doing to try and hold that influence together. 
I think that's a very fair point because while 30 years after the end of the Soviet Union, uh, many are comparing Russia's ambitions in the neighborhood with the Soviet Union. But as you said, there is no ideology behind it. And that has also been the reason why in the past, countries like Belarus and Kazakhstan, which have been close to Russia, have always been very careful to keep their independence because they do not want to become satellites of Russia. This has changed very much with Belarus and now also in Kazakhstan. But again, it's a project which is driven by Moscow. Um, also, if you look at the Eurasian Economic Union that has been established with this idea in mind. I think one point that hasn't come up in our conversation so far in terms of differences between 2014 and the present is Syria, which for Russia is a very, very important example of how its foreign policy functions. And in Syria, there's no such thing as ideological glue. Uh, you know, Russia and Syria are two very different countries, but Russia has inserted itself into the conflict. It plays a military role. It has its sort of partners and acolytes uh, there. And I think it, it feels that its, its intervention in Syria has been very successful. It's given it a lot of leverage uh, throughout the Middle East, and it's made Russia a part of the diplomatic process in the Middle East. And I think Russia looks at Ukraine, which is, in the Russian view, you know, sort of part of the Russian story. A lot of Ukrainians would disagree with that, so there is an ideological component to the Russian angle of vision. But I think it's not a necessary ingredient. I think that they see that through military action, they can gain leverage. They are at the table already through threatening uh, military force. And I think that they could apply a kind of Syria paradigm to Ukraine, such that even if Ukraine were not to become a viable country, not a partner, not a colony of Russia, just a failed state in the way that Syria is, it still functions as a buffer zone for Russia. So it's a miserable outcome, but I think it's one that Russia would consider and it would be able to do that to sort of make a failed state out of Ukraine without any ideological component. My last question for each of you is, or there's two of them actually, so the questions are, who do you predict will emerge the winner in this conflict? And what do you think are the next best steps for the West to take to try and diffuse it or end it. And I'll start with Rachel. So to build on what uh, Michael was just saying, I think uh, there's a way in which Putin is already the winner. He's back at the table with the U.S. He's back as a kind of equal of the U.S. He's no longer, you know, dismissed as Obama did as a regional player. So Putin's won already a bit. And if we want to be optimistic, there's a way where you can keep that as being his major win. So we can give him some kind of stature, some kind of perceived power and place in the world um, without sacrificing Ukrainian sovereignty. That's the kind of sweet spot we have to we have to aim for. So I'd like uh, Putin to have enough of a sense that he's coming out a winner that he doesn't need to have uh, more gains than that, which leads to the next step, which is just keep talking. And if feeding his ego and um giving him a kind of great power, great European power status uh, to keep him at the table is what we need to do, then that should be uh, the next steps. Liana, do you agree? It will sound like I'm trying to evade the question, but I think there really will not be um, a winner at the end um, at all, because even if Russia um, gains influence over Ukraine or undertakes a successful military um, intervention in Ukraine, it will be faced with strategic losses. There will be repercussions when it comes to the geostrategic situation in Europe, and we already see it now that Finland and Sweden are very explicit about their independent choice of a security alliance um, and reaffirming that if they want, it is their choice to join NATO or not. So I think the winner question um, is difficult to answer. 
on this question, what are the next steps? I completely agree with Rachel. The only problem is um, that we at the moment do not see what Moscow's next step could be because as uh, also some Russian experts have pointed out, the Russian diplomats at the talks this week didn't really seem to have any leeway to achieve results. So at the moment, it seems to be a very centralized situation where only the president takes the decision. And that makes it difficult to evaluate whether the talks will be successful, whether they will be able to continue. Um, it is a little bit of a black box of Kremlin decision making at the moment. Michael, what do you think? So, uh, you know, diversity and variety of opinion is always what we aim for. So uh, I think the West will win, but I think only in the long term. And I think in the short term, I agree with Liana, everybody is going to uh, to lose. We're all going to lose the Europe that we would want to have, a place of peace, of commerce, of uh, international exchange. That's in the long run good for Russia. They're going to endanger that. Uh, and we on the other side are sort of gradually losing that. Uh, Europe, which is, you know, horrific to to contemplate, but it's sort of the situation that we're in. And I don't really see any short term exit from that. But to address the second question that you asked, uh, Soraya, here's what I would say in terms of my long term optimism, such as it is. The steps I think we should follow are, as Rachel suggested, intensive engagement in diplomacy to the extent that we can. The United States has a real responsibility here. I'm sure Europe sees it similarly to avoid world war. You know, the United States and Russia remain the world's two major nuclear powers. Uh, We're stumbling closer and closer to some kind of collision. You use every tool that you have, diplomatic tool, to prevent that outcome. That's not just a military responsibility, that's a moral responsibility. On the other hand, I think if we can, on the Western side, avoid much military engagement in Ukraine, regardless of what happens, uh, because it's not a fight that we're really ready to engage in, it's not a fight that we could probably win, we can still... Uh, serve our interests by using economic statecraft sort of against Russia over the long term. And here the West has enormous strengths and Russia has a lot of weaknesses. So if we can tolerate a year or two of chaos, perhaps, and orient our economic statecraft toward uh, a better future, uh, I think the prospects are really not that bad. So very likely in Ukraine that we'll lose the battle, but I think also likely in the long term that we'll win the war. That was GMF non-resident fellow Michael Kimmage in Washington, D.C. Also in Washington is GMF resident fellow Liana Fix. And in our Berlin studio is GMF editorial director Rachel Tausenfreund. Thank you to all three of you for being on today. Thanks, Soraya. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to Common Ground and GMF's Transatlantic Takeaway. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Common Ground's senior producer is Dina El-Sayed, and our social media editor is Stefano Montali. Common Ground is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy. Our partners are the German Marshall Fund of the United States and the Goethe Institute. All Common Ground and Out of Order episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also check out our respective podcasts websites, commongroundberlin.com and gmfus.org. And a shout out to our new partner, Berlin Briefing. You can hear the German capital's English language news podcast every weekday.